If you were asked to describe or explain God, and especially how God is to you, what would you say? And this is a question for Christians and not alike. How do you perceive or how do you view the God of the Bible in relation to you in your life? Something I've loved in our time of of dissecting and studying the book of Acts, especially the last few chapters, is how it peels the skin off any safe or familiar explanation of our God. If you remember, it's with chapter after chapter and story after story, Acts slowly dismantles and deconstructs this, this sort of classic, modern, American, evangelical way of of viewing a one-dimensional God. God is just very one-dimensional. The God of the Christian faith is supposed to be um, this great improver of our life. A perception that God is supposed to exist to, to give us victory over our challenges or that God is the great enhancer. Like God is some sort of Chip and Joanna Gaines, right? Like come in and fix this, shiplap here, farm sink there. Like he's just constantly trying to enhance. I believe that God is probably the most, you guys can laugh louder with that Chip and Joanna joke, okay? (laughs) God is probably the most misunderstood, misrepresentative, and miscomprehended being in all of the very cosmos he has created. What I believe, though, is that many people have, uh, haven't come to understand is, is however the clay is formed in our thoughts and our hearts on our perceptions of God, is that perception informs and instructs our life. Whatever that perception may be, it informs and it instructs our life. That I, Casey, function in life with how I perceive God of the Christian faith to be and to do and to exist. Now, Christians, I would go as far to say that most of us, if not all of us, at some point or another, have believed in a one-dimensional God. If we've ever found ourselves in like dire or sour life situations, looking to the heavens and shaking our fists, God, how could you? I chose you. I was supposed to, it was supposed to be better than this, God. That is because we have then held or hold a one-dimensional view of God. Even tonight, we will see that there are more than enough times to shake our fist at God because what we have before us in Acts chapter 27 is a man by the name of Paul who finally set sail on the open sea towards Rome as a prisoner for God and his purposes. This is for God and his purposes. And he's heading heading there to to witness and to preach and to care and to minister for God and his purposes. Yet again, all of life around Paul begins to crack and break and sink, literally. And I don't know about you guys, but when I see the disciples in Acts, when I watch Paul go through court trial after court trial, right after right, beating after beating, stone after stone, for God and his purposes, I, begin to, I, I confess I begin to develop a very nagging question, like a bug crawling on my skin. And that is, why is it when Paul or when we as Christians are doing what we feel is God's will, why do we still run into obstacles, difficulties, and even 
dangers. Oh, God. Is it perhaps that God is more than a one-dimensional being? So I believe tonight we will encounter that Paul in his core represents a life that a, that a true perception can lead to a transforming reality. So start with me in verse 1. I would also ask for your patience. We're going to walk through a chunk of verses, and it's going to be a little bit more historical than theological. And then again, once we get into some drama, we'll get loco and slow down there. But we're going we're gonna to just kind of barrel through it, so bear with me. Cool? All right, starting in verse 1. And when it was decided that we should sail for Italy, they delivered Paul and some other prisoners to a centurion of the Augustan cohort named Julius. And embarking in a ship at a rap, a rap oh, oh man, you know, you practice all week to get this stupid thing down, and then, you know, you just, you just choke. Ad rapmitium, uh, Ryan, don't get off my back about it later, dude. Okay. Which is about to sail to the ports along the coast of Asia. We put to sea accompanied by Aristarchus. So Paul and Luke have a, have a buddy with them, a Macedonian from Thessalonica. Okay, something important to know. Like I said, historical rather than theological for a few moments. Something important to know is that Romans do not have their own ships. Okay, so Romans would pretty much hitchhike from port to port to port, as they are doing now. And I also want us to notice, because this is so mind-blowing, that even though Paul is a prisoner, his personal warden, this Julius guy, is totally stand-up. He's amazing. Exhibiting unusual kindness to a prisoner. Look at, look at this. Look at verse 3. The next day we put in at Sidon, and Julius treated Paul kindly and gave him a leave to go to his friends to be cared for. That, that's, that, to me, that's crazy. A little shore excursion. Go, go hang out with your buddies. Go, go, go for it. I think that's amazing. He's a top-notch soldier. But from this moment on, from this moment on, is a steady decline of dread and uneasiness in Acts chapter 27. It was interesting, as I was putting this together this morning in our living room, um, we have this painting. If you've been in my house, maybe you've seen it. We have this painting hanging in our living room, and it's a painting called The Rising Wind. And it's by a man by the name of Montague Dawson. He painted it whenever ago, whatever, I don't, it doesn't matter. And it's of a ship in a storm from the perspective of a person who is standing at the bow. And he's looking over his ship as the ship is leaning into the waves. And the crew on board is struggling as all this water is like washing over them. But what I love about this painting, if you see it or if you Google it later, whatever, is the complete lack of a storm. All this crazy stuff is happening on board and the water's coming in, but it's a complete lack of any dark clouds, thunder, or lightning. Again, it's the rising wind. Essentially, it's a warning at worse is to come. The painting was painted to basically tell anybody something wicked comes this way. That's what the painting exists for. And I believe Luke, our author, carefully and eloquently does a little foreboding of his own. So I want us to watch carefully to the wind and these next set of verses. Pay attention to the wind. Verse 4. And putting out to sea from there, we sailed under the lee of Cyprus because the winds were against us. And we had sailed across the open sea uh, along the coast of Cilicia and Pamphylia. We came to Myra and Lycia. 
There, the centurion found a ship of Alexandria sailing for Italy and put us on board. More hitchhiking. Verse 7, we sailed slowly for a number of days and arrived with difficulty uh, off Nidus. And, at the, and as the wind did not allow us to go any further, we sailed under the lee of Crete off of uh, Salomone. Verse 8, coasting along, uh, coasting along with difficulty, we came to a place called Fair Havens. It's difficult for them to be able to do this because essentially they're on this giant cargo ship full of wheat. Cargo ships back then were typically uh, 150 feet, 140 feet, whatever, and maybe 40 feet wide. And furthermore, they had one single giant mast, just one. You see ships now, they've got multiple of the sheets, the canvas hanging. There's one giant white square, just boom there, capturing all of the wind. I mean, has anybody ever been on a cruise ship before? A nice cruise ship? Yeah? Yeah, it's not like that. There you go. You get it, Lisa. Verse 9. Again, so the ship's sturdy, but not in high winds. All right, verse 9. So much time had passed, and the voyage was now dangerous because even the fast was already over. Why is that important to know? Who cares? Because this is a foreshadow of oncoming danger. The fast was the Jewish Day of Atonement, the event that happened around October. Okay? That's important to know. We should care about that because if we know anything about navigational practice of timing, anybody? No? Okay. And if anybody knew anything about it, sailing then was considered stupid in September and a death wish by November. And they're about October time. So they're in that sweet spot of like dumb and death. Does that make sense? That's where they're at right now, sailing. But Paul knows this. Paul sees this. He's like, well, do you want to go sailing now? you want to go on the open ocean now? And so Paul knows this, and Paul's going to do something about this. Now look at this. Look at verse 10. Oh, Paul, look at verse 10. This is Paul talking. Sirs, I perceive that the voyage will be with injury and much loss, not only of the cargo and the ship, but also of our very lives. Anybody remember Shawshank Redemption? Okay, three of you. Shawshank Redemption. Do you remember what they would say to the new, like the fresh meat, what they would say to the new rookie prisoners? If they started talking out of turn, what would they say? Shut up, shut up, shut up, shut up. Keep your mouth shut, shut up. How about that, that, especially that one scene where Andy Dufresne, they're all tarring the roof. Do you remember that scene? And Andy's overhearing them and he decides to set down his like tar mop and go over and talk to them and everybody was freaking out because who in the right mind would think a prisoner can walk up to dangerous guards and give a bit of advice to authority? Paul is Andy Dufresne in this moment. Okay, Paul is bonkers. He's urging them, wait out the winter months. Do not sail. This is going to be death. This is idiotic, he says. Let us not go. And remember how hard that is probably for Paul to say, because he had two destinations. I got to get to Jerusalem, and I got to get to Rome. Paul so badly wants to be in Rome. And if you were here with us last week, he basically said, as he's in court trial after court trial, get me in front of Caesar. I'm over this. Put me in front of Caesar. And they say, you got it. We would have let you go, but you want to go to Caesar, you're going to Caesar. So Paul getting in front of Caesar, probably the highest authority at that time, he's like, 
Yeah, all right, I get a front row seat with Caesar. That's like Paul being able to share Jesus with Caesar is like us going to Chuck E. Cheese, right? Like that's top. For me, it is. So this is Chuck E. Cheese to Paul. But even Paul in this moment, his dreams of, of Rome will have to wait. He's going, I, I want to get there just as badly as you guys want to get there. But we should wait. Now notice there's no indication of like some spiritual insight from Paul. He's not saying, hey, an angel come and told me a, sh- a storm's coming. He's not telling them that. Paul seems to speak from experience here. Paul has a great deal of shipwreck experience. If we were to read other parts in the New Testament, Paul has admitted that there has been around three shipwrecks he's been in. Three. Three shipwrecks. Paul has shipwrecks like we order pizza. So Paul, knowing the sheer terror that is a sinking ship, he's not particularly eager to do it again. And even with Paul imploring them and the winds picking up, get this, they decide to ignore it. They go, no, we're going. We're getting on the open seas, which is possibly the worst decision of their life. Look at verse 14. But soon, a tempestuous wind, oh my gosh, I did it, called the northeaster, struck down from the land. And when the ship was caught and could not face the wind, we gave way to it. We gave way to it and were driven along. Running under the lee of a small island called Kata, we managed with difficulty to secure the ship's boat. After hoisting it up, they used supports to undergird the ship. They are literally holding the ship together. They are living on a prayer, John Bon Jovi style. Then fearing that they would run aground on Syrtis, they lowered the gear and they were driven along. So verse 17 is important because it shows that they still have hope. At this moment, they still have hope. They're protecting the cargo. Get all the gear. We're going to protect it. It's when the crew starts throwing gear off the boat, you get worried. Okay? But that won't happen. Look at verse 18. So when we were violently storm-tossed, they began the next day to jettison the cargo. Verse 19. And on the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. Verse 20. When neither sun nor stars appeared for many days, and no small tempest lay on us, all hope of our being saved was at last Abandon. <laughs> you read that line again. All hope of our being saved was last abandoned. Friends, this is the absolute end. This is the end. This is the moment when everybody on board accepts their death as the only option. This is that moment in Toy Story 3 when they're all going down the junkyard molten lava. Do you remember that? And they all start holding hands and everybody goes, oh, Woody. Remember that moment? That's this moment. They're accepting death. Now, if you think about it, really think about this. How bad does a storm have to be for Quint-like, experienced, professional sailors and soldiers to truly abandon all hope? I mean, I know for me, again, it would be, I would see a cloud in the sky, I'd be like, nope. But these guys, haven't they seen or experienced worse? Apparently not. This is hurricane, deadly, disastrous. I mean, it has disastrous overtones all over it. And if we know anything from our recent news reports, 
we understand that this is a very I mean, relevant fear for our country. This is a high level of fear for our country. And when everything we know of mankind, when all of signs of life point to, where am I? When for sailors, suns and stars disappear. When it seems we've been utterly forgotten and alone. And if we make every man and woman, I mean, that would make every man and woman basically unbuckle who they are. I don't know anymore at this point. I don't know where we are. I don't know when we are. I don't know who we are. And friends, when that happens, and please get this, when that happens in the bowels of a breaking ship or that happens in our life, when all human hope is abandoned, that is God's curtain call. This means the stage has been set for God to intervene. See, if you read your Bible at some length, you will see that God loves impossible situations. God loves impossible situations. Throughout the Bible, we meet the elderly couple who can't get pregnant, and they get pregnant. Throughout the Bible, we watch Israelites who are being chased by an Egyptian army, and the only place they can go is the sea. We run into a child versus a Goliath. God loves impossible situations. So when you or I have deemed any circumstance in life as, this is too much, this is too crazy, this is too hard, this is too dangerous, this is too overwhelming, this is too much to handle, that is the point where God seizes it so that no one can lay claim to the glory which belongs to him. Hopefully we're starting to see how Acts dismantles any perception of God that would make God uh, a self-help coach. That would have us believe that God would never give us something we couldn't handle. And if I can just confess how much I can't stand the cliche Western thinking that God will never give us more than we can handle. I have been told that my entire life from people who weren't even Christians. Oh, God will never give you more than you can handle. That is not true of the book of Acts. That is not true of the life of Paul. That is flushed in the Bible. Friends, let me ask, who's experiencing this tonight? Is there anything happening tonight, and if not tonight, then tomorrow or next week or next month or next year, where you have perhaps abandoned all hope? You hear the rolling thunder, you're storm-tossed, there is no sign of daylight, and you are ready 100% to give up. Like, I'm, I'm done. If so, and we're at that point, I hope you ask the same question I would, which is, okay, what can be done? I'm at the point where I've abandoned all hope. What can one do? Well, if we could for the next few moments allow the storm to hit in Acts chapter 27 and watch the interplay before us of faith and fear, because I believe this is going to answer the question. But I want us to really sit in this moment of these men who have just abandoned all hope. Try to put yourself there, you know, smell the salty air, feel the empathy, the fear, hope abandoned. They're starving, dying for somebody, dying for a leader to stand up. And look at verse 21. Since they had been without food for a long time, Paul stood up among them. Paul stood up. Once in chains, but now the captain. (laughs) 
Paul stood up, a prisoner, but now the freest man on the ship. Paul stood up, despised and yet honored among all of them. Paul stood up, the bravest among soldiers and sailors. And what are the very first heroic words out of his mouth as he stands up? Men, you should have listened. You can just see part of Paul's PR guy like, <laughs> easy. <laughs> Again, I, I mean, I doubt he's being condescending, but more reassuring. Paul is reassuring them that I, you can trust me. Men, you should have listened to me and not have set sail for Crete and incurred this injury and loss. Yet now, yet now I urge you to take heart. For there will be no loss of life among you, but only of this ship. Verse 23, For this very night stood before me an angel of God to whom I belong and whom I worship. And he said, Do not be afraid. Paul, you must stand before Caesar. Behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. Verse 25, So take heart. Men, for I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I have been told but we must run, run aground on some island. But first, we got to crash this ship. In the 16th century, there was an English navigator by the name of Sir Humphrey Gilbert. So if anybody in here is pregnant, sweet old baby name. The legend has it, Legend has it that as his entire crew was terrified on one of his most infamous voyages... They went up to their captain, Sir Humphrey, and said, Captain, please, may we go back? Please. And Sir Humphrey Gilbert raised his fist in the air and shouted into the wind, I am as near to God by sea as ever I was by land. Church, Christians, this is faith. This is faith. This is an incredible display of a Christian in their faith I would say, when a Christian lives out of faith and they live it out, that is them proclaiming that I am as near to God by sea as I am by land. As in the good, as in the bad, as in the storms or in the sunny days, it does not fracture my nearness to God. That is faith at work. You see, to believe like Paul is to have greater confidence in the power of God rather than in the power of the circumstance. I want us to fully understand as much as possible, learning from the life of Paul, that faith like this is not in the business of how we feel or what our emotions might say. Faith is living from truth, whether our emotions or our feelings feel like it or not. As a pastor, if I can just confess right now, um, and I'm addressing you know Christians and, and mission members and those who would say, this is my church, so if this doesn't apply to you, you can ignore it. But I would say as a pastor at this church, my prayer has been for the last couple of weeks um, for this community, especially in this time, is that our faith would be stronger than our feelings. I've had numerous conversations that I'm not feeling it. I don't feel like going. I don't feel like giving. I don't feel like worshiping. I don't feel like loving. I don't feel like forgiving. 
My prayer, our prayer that I would invite you to join me in is that our faith would be stronger than our feelings. I would hope that we'd also flesh this out and call this to one another in our discipleship groups. That our standing with God is not dependent on how we feel. That our standing with God is not dependent on spring or winter. It's not dependent upon success or failure. It's not dependent upon sea or upon land. What I hope in our time of Acts has at least taught us is we have one more talk from our time of Acts is that Christians are to live under a different principle of life. Christianity is different. And I hope both the Christian, the unchristian, and those who are wavering hear that tonight. Our faith does not operate on the same principles that the world's faith would operate on. Why, you ask, and I hope you do. And that's where we can easily just say, the gospel, the gospel, the gospel, the gospel of Jesus Christ. If you think about it, Luke, the author, who not only wrote Acts, but he also wrote his like, self-titled album, Luke, one of the gospels, Luke painstakingly shows us the gospel of Jesus Christ through his life and his ministry and his miracles and his death, burial, resurrection. And we see that in the first book. But what we have in Acts is how to live out of faith from the gospel. Luke, at the time when Christ was being crucified, spoke of this. He said, the hour when darkness reigns. Those are Luke's words. When death was imminent. Does that sound familiar to Acts chapter 27? Oh, mama, yeah, it does. In both of Luke's stories of the shipwreck and the crucifixion of the darkness, the cross and the sea are these forces of evil and chaos and death, and they're all opposed and aligned towards Jesus and towards Paul. And in both stories, both Luke and in Acts, we see Paul and we see Jesus triumph over them. So Paul's storm, what we're reading right now, If you have been a Christian or a while, understand the gospel, you should notice that it is a reaffirmation of the truth that we've already learned through Jesus Christ. That being this, here's that gospel truth. And write this or tattoo this on your face. May we never forget it. It is this gospel truth, that there is no power in all of creation that can thwart the person or purposes of God. I'm going to repeat it. This is such huge gospel truth for our faith. There is no power in all of creation that can thwart the person or purposes of God. So that nagging question we might be asking, why is it when I feel like I'm doing the will of God, I've moved here to LA, I've given up everything, and yet I'm running into obstacle, hindrance, roadblock, dangers, risk. What's the deal, God? What's up? I've held up my end of the bargain. Again, I will say it, but that is to hold a one-dimensional view of God. You see, a fuller understanding of the gospel and of faith reverses that logic. A deeper understanding of faith would see what's happening to Paul or the disciples in the book of Acts and instead ask, no, why wouldn't that happen to those in faith. No, 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 no. Why wouldn't that happen? This faith which stems from the gospel has a joy and a boldness that is open to enter into Christ's full experience of suffering and pain. 
Again, Christians live under a different principle of life, and that comes by a right perspective of how God relates to his people. Peter in another book of Acts, or you know, another beast in the book of Acts, you guys probably most definitely remember him from earlier, has this to say about a fuller understanding of gospel and faith. This is from his letter. This is what Peter says. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, like a shipwreck, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes though it has been tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So when the world panics, those who receive the gospel are promised peace. Okay? So when the world is freaking out in fear, the gospel encourages our faith. When there is suffering all around us, the gospel gives us even in our own life, a reason to still find a reason to, to, to sing. And when there's difficulty, the gospel says that we will have a joy that can never be stolen. And that's literally the original language that Paul has here for these sailors in verse 25. When he says, take heart, what he's basically saying is, cheer up. The oddest word spoken in a shipwreck ever. Cheer up. I bet not a single person said that on the Titanic. No, 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 everybody. And cheer up. No. Paul is saying, find joy because in this moment is when God steps in. Wouldn't that be transformational to possess a faith that when the storm starts, we go hot digging. God's about to do work. Man, I don't know about you, but I want that in me. So maybe you're asking, cool, how do we get that? How much? Well, I believe Paul gives us two benchmarks, and I'll go over them very quickly. But look at verse 23. These are the benchmarks I think Paul gives us. If we want that sort of fuller faith, I believe Paul gives us the answers. Verse 23. For this very night there stood before me an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I worship. It's so easy just to drive right over those, right? to whom I belong and to whom I worship. And if you think about it, Paul could have said anything in this moment. As he's sitting around with his buddies, the sailors and soldiers, and they're all freaking out, he could have said anything. To whom are you? To my, to my God who, who filled the earth with its seas. The God who makes orcas and waves. The God who's the God of all the cosmos and made Jupiter. Anything to sort of reassure them. But he says this, and I'm the God to whom I belong. The legend and the man Charles Spurgeon says this. This deals with the most important point about us. For us to belong to Christ is the most essential thing for time and eternity. So for the crew and to the crew, Paul takes it from the idea of, yeah, he could have talked about the idea of creation, and Paul takes it to redemption. The Christians have been bought with a price. Basically, Paul is saying, I am owned. Ain't nothing going to happen to me. And I think for us as Angelinos, and mostly millennials in this room, that is a frightening notion. To be owned. Isn't our mantra and all of our bumper stickers and 
all the stickers on our Nalgene bottles, whatever it could possibly be, saying, I'm owned by nobody. But the essence of this means Paul is saying, I am like a spouse to a spouse. I am a child to a father. I am a sheep to a shepherd. This is the golden key to Paul's faith. You see, if we are insecure or unassured, it's because we are unassured of the Lord and his ability. And I will confess right now, standing before you is one of the most insecure people you will ever meet. This is a message for me entirely. I am so beyond insecure. It's outrageous. But insecurity has the core of, uh, I don't really trust that God is going to do what he says he's going to do. Insecurity has the heart of, God is incompetent. So culture disapproves of insecurity because it believes oneself to be inferior, right? God disapproves of insecurity because it, it believes his son is inferior. And this is what happens with storms and shipwrecks. It, ex, it exposes and, and it exhorts it. It, ex, it exhorts an unassured faith. It exposes insecure hearts. So to Paul, to belong is crucial to a fuller understanding of faith. And then he says this, to whom I worship, which I thought was sort of redundant. If I belong to somebody, I think worship comes naturally. This is what Paul says is crucial in the life of faith is worship. I don't know if anybody here thought immediately, really? Worship? (laughs) Really? If we thought that, I would hope that this would start to sober us. So very, very practically, let me say this about our community. Out of the years I've been a pastor, if our lives start to dissolve, or if somebody's life starts to dissolve, worship is the first thing that goes. Their worship. So again, very practically, somebody's financial worship, giving, as Pastor Lorenzo talked about this morning with giving, people start to withhold their generosity from the church or from one another. Very practically, again, about thinking about areas of worship. People stop coming to the church gathering if their life may start to dissolve. And worship is a huge key component to what we do here on Sundays. You can tell individuals are starting to abandon hope in Christ and his church by the measure in which they worship. Worship is a measure. See, if you're in one of our discipleship groups, part of us being participating or participants in making disciples is helping one another realign their worship. Going, no, 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 you're... You're out of whack, bro. Because it's worship, it's an adoring heart which focuses our attention. Meaning, we begin to see him and his ability, not us and our inability, at the center of everything. It's this metamorphosis to God and God's agenda. Now listen to this quote. It's from Eugene Peterson. An old softball buddy of mine. I'm just joking, he's not. I don't know why I said that. I wish. Can you imagine? The old genester. <laughs> Holding communion in the dugout again. Oh, Gene. Here's what old EP has to say. This is beautiful. Worship is the strategy by which we interrupt our preoccupation with ourselves and attend to the presence of God. It's the time and place that we assign for deliberate attentiveness to God because our self-importance is so insidiously relentless that if we don't uh, deliberately interrupt ourselves regularly, we have no chance of attending to him at all 
at other times and in other places. Do we see what Eugene is saying? If worship is not our preoccupation on land, it will not be our preoccupation in sea. So when we see dramas like shipwrecks and we go, wow, Z, look at Paul's faith. It's because Paul gives deliberate attentiveness to God in both the bad, yes, but also the good. Again, this is a struggle for so many because I believe emotions rather than discipleship often dictate our loyalties, our generosity, our affections, our worship, and even our courage. The same courageous face that Paul has just injected into this crew. As the waves are crashing down and darkness still fills the sky, but now the situation just goes from worse to doomsday, and we're going to wrap it up here. But as the sailors were listening, they with their trained nautical ears can hear something else. It's unbelievable. They are able to distinguish the sounds between the sound of a storm and the sound of a surf breaking on a shore nearby. The sailors can hear it happening as Paul is giving his, his famous speech. So good news is they're close to land. Bad news is they're in a storm and they're close to land. Okay, so look at verse 28. So they took a sounding and found 20 fathoms. A little farther on, they took a sounding again and found 15 fathoms. A sounding is like this device they drop in the ocean telling them the distance of, of depth, to determine the depth, okay? And a fathom is about six feet or so. should be for like this for the sailors. But as they were dropping, it was getting shallower. Okay, so they're throwing it in, and they're like, all right, we're at 20 fathoms. All right, do it again. We're at 15, captain. We're doing it again. We're at 10. So it's very nerve-wracking. Verse 29, and fearing that we might run in the rocks, they let down four anchors from the stern and prayed for day to come. These are breaking anchors. This is not a stabilizing anchor. So they're just dropping off these little anchors to try to slow them down. Like, can't, can't do it. Okay. Verse 30. And as the sailors are seeking to escape from the ship, so as they're getting safer and everything seems like it's going to be okay, and they all had that camaraderie Toy Story 3 moment, get that? And they lowered the ship's boat into the sea under the pretense of laying uh, out anchors from the below. Verse 31. Paul sees them trying to escape. No, 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 no. And Paul said to the Assyrians and the soldiers, unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. Commit to a sinking ship, he says. You have to stay. They cannot go anywhere. Now I find this fascinating as we've been talking about faith this entire time because this is divine sovereignty and human responsibility on one ship right now in this moment. The interplay between faith and action I want everybody here to get this. The fact that God announces what the end result is going to be does not mean that we are permitted to fold our hands and go, somebody bring me some peach pie. Everything's gonna be A-okay. I've read the book of Revelation. We're good. I don't need to do nothing. I don't need to serve. I don't need to get my hands dirty. I don't need to be a part of a church. I don't need to get busy for Jesus. Wrong, wrong, wrong. God's promises include man's activity, as Paul demonstrates. Because man's actions are the means which God works his promises out. Now, if you'd allow me, I just want to read the rest of the story because it's so incredible. Just read it. It's only a handful of verses. Bear with me. Then the soldiers cut away the ropes of the ship's boat and let it go. And as day was about to dawn, Paul urged them to all to take some food, saying, Today is the 14th day that you've continued in suspense without food and have taken nothing. Therefore, I urge you to take some food, for it will give you strength. For a hair, 
for not a hair is to perish from the head of any of you. And when he had said these things, he took bread and giving thanks to God in the presence of all, he broke it and began to eat. Paul stops in the middle of a shipwreck to pray for his food. That is epic. That is so great. Verse 36, they were all encouraged and ate some food themselves. We were all, we were in all about 276 persons in the ship. And when they had eaten enough, they lightened the ship, throwing out the wheat into the sea. There goes their paycheck. Now when it was day, they did not recognize the land, but they noticed a bay with a beach on which they planned, if possible, to run the ship ashore. We're going to ram this thing right on the sand. So they cast off, uh, cast off the anchors and let them in the sea. So they're just cutting their anchors loose. At the same time, loosening the ropes that tied up the rudders, then hoisting the force up to the wind that they made for the beach. But striking a reef, they ran the vessel ground. The bow stuck and remained immovable, and the stern was being broken up by the surf. The soldier's plan was to kill the prisoners, lest any of them should swim and escape. So they see how close they're getting to land, and some of the, 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 the soldiers are like, take them out, kill them all. Prisoners cannot escape, because we know what happens. If prisoners escape, guess what happens? Soldiers die, Okay. So they're freaking out. But verse 43, but the centurion, that being Julius, wishing to save Paul, kept from them from carrying out their plan. He ordered to those who could swim to jump overboard first and make for land. And the rest on planks or pieces of wood, Jack and Rose style, right? And so it was that all were brought safely to land. Oh my gosh. And so it was that all were brought safely to land. Some of the most important words in the book of Acts that you will ever read was, and so it was. Other translations say, so it came true. Christians, these are the, some of the most four crucial words to our faith by land or by sea. They are the reason we worship, the reason that you guys are invited each and every week to come to the carpets and kneel or raise your hands, the reason why we sing because of these four little words and what they mean for our life and what they mean for our death. It's saying that our perception of God should be that God is exactly who he said he would be and does exactly as he said he will do. So as we go into response tonight in worship, are there any promises of God that you are not believing? Is there an unevangelized part of our heart that God is not allowed to enter. And I do not believe that about God. These words also speak into our, our receiving of communion, our weekly communion, heralding that there is no power in all of creation that can thwart the person, the purposes of God. Communion is for Christians, for here to say that I have faith in the gospel of Jesus. And lastly, we are a praying church, meaning we, like Paul in the storms, stop in the moment of chaos and pray and say, God, thank you. Even in the midst of our life falling apart, God, I want to pray and give you gratitude. So tonight, there's going to be people on that back wall with lanyards and that back wall with lanyards. If you have anything in the midst of chaos or good or fine or whatever it is, but if you need to receive prayer, will you go to these teams, please? They want to pray over you. I don't know them. They're going to ask me a million questions. Nope. They just want to pray for you. They care for you. They love you. Allow that to be our posture tonight. Have faith to go out and seek one another. To have faith to believe that God is exactly as he said he is. Amen? Let's pray.